Welcome to the C3 Church podcast. Here at church, we are passionate about people and helping them in their walk with God. We hope this Sunday message speaks to you today. I love that. It's so rowdy in here already. Look at that. Perfect for first thing this morning. As you can see, I love a little prop. Um, hopefully, oh, I see you peering in. This is exciting. Okay. This is also a prop. This isn't just to get my morning started. <laughs> but it is really good being here together. So welcome to all congregations and to the prisons who are tuning in from across the UK. Uh, I'm Dr. Elspeth Darley. I'm a member here at the C3 Church. I'm also a trustee here. And it really is my joy to be continuing our series through the Romans uh, book with the help of Dr. Andrew Ollerton's book, a letter that makes sense of life. This is really a great resource. Last week, we heard about how all humanity is in a valley of sin. It was a diagnosis given to all of us in the same boat. No exits, everybody, a diagnosis. And so this week, it really is a joy to be able to talk about the cure for all of humanity then as we turn a corner out of the valley of sin and we climb the crux of salvation. We're going to be looking at our rescue. So we're going to be doing that by jumping straight into Romans chapter 3. We're going to go to verse 21. The verses should appear on the screen behind me, and I'd love it if we could read these things together. I think it's powerful when we do that. Look at that, there we go, okay. Try and zoom in with your eyes, here we go. I'll I'll lead us, I'll lead us nice and strong. There we go, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. (gasps) You can take a breath. I don't think there was a real big pause in in that chunk. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever sat down for an exam, you've opened the paper, you've read the question, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I've been sat there and I think, I didn't know, don't think I understood a word of that. What, what on earth does that mean? What does this word mean here? What, what am I being asked? What am I supposed to understand? And to be honest, sometimes when I'm reading the book of Romans, I think to myself, Paul, what words are you using? Propitiation, redemption, justification? I mean, come on, I'm a bit lost here. It's a bit like I'm sat down and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, where do I go from here? And if you ever feel like that, you're in great company. In fact, um, Peter One of Jesus' closest disciples writes in a letter in 2 Peter, and he says, some of Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. 
So I think, my goodness, if Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, says some stuff that Paul writes is a bit difficult, I think we are in good company. In fact, these verses that you've read through with me are some of the most debated and hotly discussed topics in all of New Testament theology. People saying, what is it that Paul means when he talks about justification? What does it mean then that we're rescued from a valley of sin? What does that look like? What is redemption? Why, Why are we talking about blood? And I love how Andrew Ollerton says it here that thankfully we don't have to understand everything that Paul says for it to be, for us to really be rescued from sin. And so if the next 20 minutes are a bit of a blur, you feel a bit lost, I'm sorry about that, but just remember the great reality is that you have been rescued by Jesus from valley of sin. You're not who you were, you are made somebody completely different in him. But for the next 20 minutes, I want us just to uh, basically think about how can we understand some of the language that Paul is talking about. So today's message is a springboard for you. Get some tools for your midweek reading as you continue reading through Romans, as you discuss some of this stuff in Connect Group as well. What is it that Paul's really saying? What does this actually mean? How do I understand what he's getting at? And I can hear... My mum in the back of my head, she used to tell me whenever I had an exam, Elspeth, make sure you read the question several times. If you don't know the words, get your highlighter out, highlight, circle some of these words. If the word appears more than once, you know, underline it again because it's probably quite important. And so that's what I'd love for us to do then. So some of the words, I'd love if they came back on the screen again. And just shout out what on earth do some of these words mean. Here we go, I've made a short list already. Righteousness of God. What does that mean? Justified, redemption, propitiation. Maybe your translation says something else like sacrifice of atonement or place of atonement. Depends which translation you read from. And so I want us just to kind of go through these words to unpick really what the passage is saying to us so that we can have a bigger picture view, if that's all right. (coughs) Now the term righteous and the term justified, they come from the same Greek word. So they come from, the, it's a root word, delta, iota, kappa, so it's kind of a dick sound. And so when you're reading these verses, they, these words appear around six times in five verses, so they're everywhere. So there's a bit of clever wordplay. If you were listening to it in the original, you would pick up on, wow, there's, there's a real kind of um, importance given to righteousness. And so there's our first clue, that something about a cure for humanity is in righteousness and being justified or being made righteous. Now, righteous means morally right or justifiable. Now, this term is is borrowed from the Roman court. And so to kind of represent this in the way that Paul does, Paul draws on lots of different images to try and unpack really what he's talking about. I have here some scales of justice. So if you've ever been to a courtroom, sometimes you see a picture of scales. And and this is to represent the courtroom that we have. Righteousness, justification, their courtroom language. They're borrowed straight from the Roman court. And what we have then is we have God who is the absolute moral judge. He's totally righteous. He's totally pure. He's totally justifiable. And so he gets to be the judge. And in Jewish thought, um, there was a belief that at the end of this life you would go to a heavenly courtroom scene. It's called the Greater Seas. And in this, you had God as the judge, and you had the Jewish people uh, 
before God, and then you had the non-Jewish people or the Gentiles, so anyone who wasn't a Jew was called a Gentile, and they were brought before this kind of heavenly judge um, who was incredibly righteous. And the thought was then that God would kind of look at the life you'd lived and he would say, right, well, you're righteous, you're not righteous. And for the Jewish people, they thought, well, this is pretty straightforward because we are God's chosen people. Therefore, when we arrive in this heavenly court scene, God will say, right, you are righteous, everyone else not righteous. And so you can imagine their surprise then when they've read Romans chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3, which says actually there's no exits. Everybody is in the same boat. Everyone together, there is, there's no exits This is a diagnosis on all of humanity that you are trapped in sin. Nobody is righteous before a holy God. In fact, this comes to a climactic point then in verse 23, where it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's quite a famous verse. And the word glory, when we talk about God's glory, comes from the word weight. That God's glory is weighty. All of us fall short of the glory, the righteousness of God. Ah, oh, but I double tithe. Oh, no, okay. Okay, well, I'm, I'm a really good person. You know, I think I, I look after the environment. Um, I'm really generous. I serve on all the rotors at church. There, oh, no, okay, still, still lacking somehow. You know, and I'm a really, really good person. Uh, no, okay, I pay my taxes. I don't even, I've not even got a, a speeding ticket. That's how obedient I am to the law of the land. No. We all fall short of the glory of God. In fact, the Bible says that if you are trying to live this perfect life, if you stumble over one small thing, you've broken all of the laws. I got really cross and I lost my temper. Ah, Yes, I did lie about that. I forgot to honor God in that situation. And we're back at the beginning. It's a bit like a bad game of snakes and ladders. We all fall short of the glory of God. I see this at work actually, and my work is a bit of a psychologist. So when I work with clients, quite often we talk about their symptoms, what brings them to therapy. And usually at the heart of a, of a lot of these symptoms, we talk about people's core pain or their core belief systems that they have about themselves and the world around them. And the one that I come to again and again and again with people is people say, I'm just not good enough. I just, ah, deep down, I just, I feel like I'm bad. I feel like I'm lacking something. I'm, it's just something, I'm, not, I'm just not good enough. And I try and say, well, what do you mean you're not good at? What, you know, good enough at? What standard is it that you've broken? Why do you feel bad? Why, what is it that you're lacking? What do you mean? And they say, look, I know I'm a good person. I, I know my family love me. I love them. I, I try to, you know, live life morally. I try to do all these things. And yet I still feel like I'm not good enough. All other world religions talk about ascending to God, about being a good moral individual. And Christianity is the only religion that says, you know what? All of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us in our own rights are good enough. We are all in the same boat. This is the diagnosis of humanity. But then we read verse 24. Verse 24 says this. That the glorious judge, you can imagine it in the courtroom situation, he's seen the evidence laid out, he's seen your finest efforts, your worst efforts, he knows who you are. And in view of all the evidence, it says what? He says that God has gifted you righteousness. 
He has gifted you that which you could not earn. He has made you morally right, justifiable in his presence before a holy, pure, wonderful, righteous God. He's gifted that to us. That's something that we could never earn. We could never strive to be good enough. We could never pay this back. It's not a wage. It's a gift of righteousness that has been given to us. Now, this should just blow our minds, first of all, the fact that God is so incredible that he sees the situation, the predicament of humanity, and he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a gift of righteousness. Wow. Now, if that's enough for you there, then then that's incredible enough, isn't it? That God is so generous that he would do that. But there's a question it, it raises, which is how can God, as verse 26 puts it, how can God show himself as righteous and that he justifies. Does God turn a blind eye to sin and to the evidence? Does he say, oh, you know what, I'll, I'll turn my blind eye to this. You can, yeah, there we go, you're righteous. Yeah, I'll give you the gift of righteousness. No, 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 because God is still a just, righteous, glorious God. So how does he do that? How can he pardon or excuse our sin? How can he give us a, this declaration of righteousness while also being totally pure, totally holy, and an incredible judge? A couple of years ago, I had uh, one particular client um, who I'd been working with uh, for some time. She was quite elderly. I've got permission to share this. And she came into a session with me and she said, Elspeth, I, just, I feel full of bad blood. I feel like I, I'm just full of this stuff. And when I come to therapy, it's like I have a needle put in my arm and a kind of an injection, an infusion of fresh blood. And yeah, it feels therapeutic. And yeah, my distress is alleviated a little bit and I feel a little bit better. But it's a drop in the ocean. What I need, Elspeth, is a blood transfusion. I need somebody to take away my bad blood and to give me their new blood. This person had no idea really what they were saying and I was having to kind of bite my lip as this person was saying it to me in the session. But this is kind of where Paul goes with his thinking. He's saying that actually we can be declared righteous, being given this righteousness through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, through the shedding of his blood. So Paul is going to unpack this now. He's going to unpack the question of how is it that we can be declared righteous? And he says through the redemption that came through Jesus' blood. So this is the second point. Here we have a glass of wine to symbolize the blood, the shedding of Jesus' blood blood. I love how Andrew Ollerton's book explains that the the term redemption comes from the slave market. So we've had a term that's come from the Roman court, we now have a term that comes from the slave market. And when we talk about slavery, we can think, oh goodness, that's really just not a pleasant topic, it's a bit outdated. And at the time of writing, um, one in three people in Rome were in slavery. Some of them were forcibly put into slavery, other people maybe uh, sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts. And over every slave was a ransom price. In other words, it was, if you want to buy your freedom back, if you want to be emancipated from slavery, this is how much it's going to cost you. So you could try and save up and free yourself. Uh, Or maybe somebody, a, a loved one, a family member would save up their money so that they could redeem you. In other words, they could take you, buy you out of slavery and give you freedom. So this is the second image then that Paul's doing. He's saying, we can be given this gift of righteousness because Jesus has paid our ransom price. We are free then from slavery. We have been freed from this debt. I love that. What an image. Again, Paul takes it a step deeper and he says, you know what your ransom price was? It wasn't silver or gold. It definitely wasn't good works. It wasn't a list of achievements and merits. No, no, no. 
your ransom price was blood. Again, to our ears, that can sound a little bit Shakespearean. What do you mean, blood? Why did I need blood? But to the, kind of the first people who were listening to this letter, so to some of the Jewish people, this would have made perfect sense. It taps into another image system that we have. Back in the second book of the Bible, Exodus, we've got a story of Moses. Moses, you might know it from a lovely Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, goes to Pharaoh, and what does he say? You can sing it to me, let my people go. There we go. So that's what he says. He says, free my people, free the people from slavery. And when Pharaoh's heart is hardened, the consequence of that hardening of heart and his rejection is what? Ten plagues that come on the land of Egypt. The final plague, kind of the worst one, is the death of the firstborns. The death of the firstborn, kind of children, livestock. And so God gives a warning then. He says, look, Death is going to be coming to your door tonight. And so take an animal, kill it, get its blood, and with that blood, cover your doorposts so that when death arrives, it sees as a substitute another's blood in place of your blood. A sign of your faith in God. I am hidden in the blood of another. I am covered over in the blood of another. In effect, my ransom has been paid. Here it is. Here's the sign of that. My ransom's been paid so that tonight I can go free, that I won't die. So there's the first image. God's blood. The second one, and this is where Paul really zooms in with the language that he uses. But once a year... The biggest Jewish festival was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. There'd be a 10-day period of repenting. God, we know the laws that we've broken. We know the convictions that stand against us. God, we're sorry for these things. And on the final day of that feast of Yom Kippur, what they would do is they'd sacrifice the animal. They'd take the blood, and they'd pour it out on top of the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, you might know something of what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. It's this big, yeah, I see people nodding, Indiana fans. But there's this big gold box, and inside this box uh, were several different items, including the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, honor your father and mother, don't commit adultery, don't murder, you know, the, the kind of the top ten. And so, in effect, inside the Ark of the Covenant was a reminder then of the laws that these people were breaking. It was a list of their convictions, as it were. And so there's something powerful then on the Day of Atonement where the blood was covered over, it poured over the place of the law. It atoned for them. Now, verse 25, everyone's Bible has a very, very different translation, propitiation, big word, I think if you're reading the King James Version or the ESV, it might say, blood was a sacrifice of atonement. You have to say it in a certain accent because different translations have personalities. Who set forth as a propitiation by his blood. The NRSV reads, a place of atonement. So in English, we're kind of trying to grapple with lots of different words saying, what does it, what's Paul really getting at? What's he really saying? But it comes from one Greek word, hilasterion. And that literally means the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the cover or the top part of the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwelt. (coughs) It was there where God's presence dwelt that he would talk to Moses and would talk with laws, would talk to him about these things. And actually what what Paul is saying is that Jesus' blood, our redemption, our ransom price, was poured out on the mercy seat the very place where God dwells to cover over our lawlessness, 
not because law doesn't matter, but to fulfill, to satisfy the place where the law was given. (coughs) Jesus is our place of atonement. And on that day on Yom Kippur, for at least that day, they would know the presence of God. They would know what it was to be clean before him. Now, friends, because we have Jesus' blood, it was a greater sacrifice. This is a once-for-all sacrifice, that we are permanently clean, that we are permanently declared free and righteous. Now, for some of us, then, when we take communion, in fact, we're told when we take communion, it's participatory. What I mean by this is that it's not just our sins have been wiped clean, we've been forgiven, although that's true, but there's something about us being in the blood of Christ. When we take communion, he is in us, we are in him. In fact, the, the term in Christ is used about 180 times in the New Testament, whereas the term Christians only used about three times. We are in Christ, we are united with him. In fact, some people say when we use the word atonement, it's at one. We are now at one with Christ. We are hidden in him. He is our covering. He is our substitute. He has redeemed us. So it's not just in this courtroom. Justification isn't just a, well done, just if you've never sinned, off the hook, off you go. But it's saying, wow, this is now a declaration. I love N.T. Wright who says, this is a declaration that you have the status of someone in true covenant family membership. And this, of course, means that your sins are forgiven, since this is the point of covenant. Paul's taking it again a bit deeper. He's saying it's not just about your sins being forgiven. It's about being found in another. His righteousness was my righteousness. His death was my death. His resurrection was my new life given to me. We are found in Christ, in Jesus And so if we go back to the courtroom scene, you can imagine then the judge has not only given us this gift of righteousness, he doesn't just say, I declare that you're free from these convictions, but he says, and you know what? Here we are, here's your adoption certificate. You're free to go and you belong to my family now. You've been found in me, you've been found in Christ. You've moved then, there's been a a shift in your status from condemned to free, from slave to redeemed, from orphan to child. This is why we are truly free from the valley of sin and the crux of salvation. It changes everything. It changes everything. A declaration that changes everything. Andrew gives a really good example of this in his book. He writes... During a severe potato famine in Ireland, several families wrote letters to their landlords saying they had absolutely no money to pay their rent and begged to be let off the debt. The Irish landlord, Canon Andrew Robert Fawcett, wrote back to his tenants and explained that it's quite impossible to let you off of your debts because it would set a bad precedent. They had to pay every single penny because he had to be fair. But, he wrote... I enclosed something that might help, and he set a check for a very large sum of money which more than covered all of their debts. Their hearts must have leapt for joy as they read that word, but. I love that, and I think that's a great story, and I'd want to take it one step further and say, imagine then, are you with that Irish family? You've said, I can't pay for these debts. I need help. I need help paying them. You receive the letter, and inside then is the check 
for all the money and a bit more that you need to do. Your debts have been paid. You've received this gift. How incredible. And there's the adoption certificate. The landlord says, and you know what? Here's the other part of your gift. You are now part of my family. You have been found in me. You're one of mine. Not only do you have this money, then the check, but you are going to have this huge inheritance. Everything that I have is going to be yours. <coughs> you don't have to go back living the life that you once did. You're now transformed. You've got a different status. You're part of my family. You can eat from my table. Can you imagine that kind of gift? Now, that is a gracious gift that you could never earn. You could never pay back. It changes everything. It's not just the declaration that you're free and you're forgiven. It's the declaration that you are free and forgiven and part of a promised family. I love that. And so for this family then that received this news, they had to trust God. They had to believe that this was true, didn't they? And that faith changed everything. They had to trust that the check was genuine. They had to trust that the landlord really said what he meant. They have to trust that they are part of this new family. They have to trust all these things. And that faith shifts everything. It's not just an intellectual decision. Ah, oh, okay, sounds about right. Yes, there we go. No, no, no. <coughs> it was so much more than that. It's saying, actually, faith changes everything. I believe this, and that changes my reality. It changes my walk. And in the next couple of weeks, and as we go through Romans, we're going to be looking a little bit about what living out faith looks like. Walking by faith, living by faith, living out this reality looks like. Romans then, as we talk about the crux of salvation, gives us a wonderful case study of a man called Abraham in chapter 4. And it says this. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls to being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. <coughs> Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that his wife Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It's an incredible case study. Abraham, 99 years old, gets taken outside and God promises him, I'm going to give you children as many stars there are in the sky and grains of sand on the beach. And friends, if you and I have faith in Jesus Christ, that we have been declared righteous, then we are one of the stars in that sky. We are one of the grains of sand on that beach. We have been brought into a family with Abraham as our forefather, not through race or biology or achievements and good works, but by our faith in the promise of God that he is strong enough to do all that he says he can do. 
This is why we turn a corner out of the valley of sin, because God has declared us righteous. He has located us into his family. He is very pleased with us. I love how Paul writes that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And maybe some of you feel like you need a bit of strengthening in your faith. You think, yeah, this sounds amazing. I want to believe it more. I want to trust it. I want to walk in this, in this faith. I want to live it out. And Paul says you do that then by giving thanks, giving glory to God for the reality that we have in Jesus. And this is where we're going to end I'm going to say a prayer of thanks, and if that's you as well, if you know that you are found in Christ and you agree with me, just love it if you said amen. So wherever you're at, maybe just quieten yourself before Christ. Hmm. Hmm. Father, we are so grateful for you. I thank you that you have declared us free from sin, that you have declared that we are part of your family, I thank you that your blood was shed, Jesus, to fulfill the laws, to satisfy the laws, God, that you could be just and justifier. I thank you that you gave us something that we could never pay back, that we could never earn. I thank you that we're never going to be found out, we're never going to be found wanting, we're never going to short, kind of fall short again. I thank you that all of this rests on you and this incredible gift that we receive from you. And for that, we say thank you. In your name we pray, amen. amen. The second way of being thankful then for us here in the room and if you're at one of our different locations is communion. We talk about this communion, it's called Eucharist, which Eucharisto in Greek means I give thanks. It's saying I remember the sacrifice that Jesus has paid for me and I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna say thanks for that. It's a moment of uniting yourself with Christ again. He and us, we and him, we're participating, we're united with him. Now this is a meal for believers. So if you know that you are in the family of God, if, if you've come to Christ and you've asked for his forgiveness and you trust him and he's declared you righteous, then this is a meal for you. This is something that you get to have. And so in a moment, the band are gonna sing a song over us. And because this is a family meal, I'd love it if you turn to the person on your left, on your right, Maybe you know them, maybe you don't, doesn't matter, we're all family. And one of you prays and says, thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was shed. And then the other person prays, thank you for your body that was killed on the cross for me so that I could know new life. That's what we're going to do. We're not going to be British about it. Does everybody have a communion cup? Fantastic. I'd love it if we could stand together then. This is a family meal. <laughs> a family meal. I'm going to get off the stage. The band are going to sing. The person on your left, person on your right. If you know them, if you don't, doesn't matter. And just pray together. Thank Jesus for his sacrifice. Thank Jesus for the reality of this that we have in him. You with me? Yeah? You with me? Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Here we go.
If there's anyone in this room right now that is listening to this and thinks, I want to be a part of this. I want to step further into this. I want to have that deeper revelation of what that communion is. Then I'm going to provide an opportunity right now for you to become a Christian. For you to pray a prayer that says, yeah, I'm in. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a Christ follower. I want to change my life radically from this day for all of eternity. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer right now. And I'd love every single person to join in with this prayer. And then at the end, I'm going to ask you just to slip your hand up into the air because we'd love to give you a gift and to say, well done. That is the best decision that you can ever make. So every eye closed, every head bowed across this room and join in this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came down to earth, that you sacrificed your life and you rose again, defeating death. Today I choose to live in relationship with you. Forgive me for my past and I step into a brand new future with you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, eyes closed across this place. If someone prayed that for the first time today or you said, I want to recommit, then just slip your hand up into the air because we'd love to give you a Bible to say, well done, the Gospel of Luke, and to rejoice with you as heaven is rejoicing for that hand. Come on. Thank you for listening to the C3 Podcast. This message has spoken to you today in some way. We would love to know. Reach out to us at hello at the c3.uk. And if you want to extend the reach of what we do here, why not consider giving by going to the c3.uk forward slash giving. And as always, subscribe to our channel and share this episode with a friend. We hope to see you soon.